Welcome to this session of the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. We're very honored today to have with us Professor Thomas Hazlett of Clemson University, who's going to speak to us about the economics of spectrum and particularly from Marconi to the iPhone, the quest to liberate wireless technologies of freedom. Professor Hazlett is uh, one of the world's leading experts on the economics of spectrum. I would I don't think there's any doubt he actually is the world's leading expert on the economics of spectrum. Uh, he has a long and distinguished career, including a stint as chief economist at the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, we're very uh, honored today to have Evan Quirrell with us from the FCC. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, I've known Tom for a great many years, uh, but I'm particularly honored to be able to call him a dear friend uh, who's gone off to the great football capital of America, Clemson University. <laughs> Go Tigers. <coughs> Go Tigers. Uh, for those of us who grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, at a, with a lesser football school, uh, 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 yes, uh, uh, I, a certain school that's a, a drinking school with a football problem, <laughs> unlike Clemson. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's that's wow. where I uh, hail from. Tom, wow. we're greatly honored to have you here. Tell us about wireless spectrum. <laughs> Thank you, Harold, and uh, you know you're too kind, and uh, I really do appreciate your uh, uh, having me give this talk, and appreciate you uh, uh, coming out. And some of my old friends are here. Um, and uh, all I'll say about uh, South Carolina, I was uh, I, I was here in the Washington D.C. area. In fact. We lived in Maryland for 15 years, then last year we moved to South Carolina. Uh, some people say, well, apparently you only like to live in one-party states. Uh, but uh, <laughs> There are uh, a lot of parties going on <laughs> in South Carolina. <laughs> exactly. There are lots of parties. Uh, but uh, when I uh, uh, went to Clemson, I say, well, the nice thing is, uh, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles uh, in a UCLA household, and I, uh, I of course, uh, I hated USC. And going to Clemson, I can still hate USC. So, uh, you know, the, tribal, uh, uh, the tribalism carries over. Anyway, uh, here we are at the Hudson Institute. And Hudson has a nice logo, uh, but I don't think they want to challenge the Clemson Tiger, at least uh, on the gridiron. Uh, but it is uh, an honor to be here and a treat uh, to be with Harold, the only PhD economist ever served on the Federal Communications Commission. And, uh, and did so uh, with distinction. Um, I uh, am writing a book, and I uh, want to alert you folks uh, as you uh, shop, shop for next year's Christmas uh, list. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, reportedly on the spring uh, catalog for Yale University Press. People say, how long have you been working on this book? And my uh, answer is, since I was five. And uh, it uh, uh, is an experience uh, uh, to do it, and um, it's great to talk about it. Uh, there are 112,000 words in the book, not counting footnotes, and we're going to try to talk fast and not do any more than half of those words here today. So we'll see how far we get. Here's the overview. Um, we got regulation of radio spectrum for a very obvious reason. Uh, there's a very big social value in averting tragedy, sometimes called tragedy of the commons. And 
It's good to have rules to help coordinate the use of a resource like spectrum, radio spectrum, the airways through which communications travel. Um, but we got a very political regulatory system that has had very structural uh, distinctions that give us certain outcomes regularly that uh, create some value, but in fact leave us very disappointed for the total outcome. And we've been grappling with that for nearly a century now. Uh, through the uh, political spectrum, we have identified multiple ways of looking at things, of course, but there are two pronounced regulatory paradigms, policy paradigms, that I want to point out to you. And I, I, these form themes of the book, and I think it really helps to look at what actually develops in the marketplace under the dueling regulatory paradigms. And uh, we'll do a little bit of that. And I do want to say that this is not just a, uh, you know, the title of the book is not Regulation, Hoax, or Fallacy. Uh, it, it's a nuanced story. There's been a lot that, that regulation has disappointed on, but there's also been a lot of positive momentum uh, in the last many decades that have liberated a very substantial part, uh, you know, a, a modest fraction maybe, but an important fraction of the radio spectrum and the incredible social value that's been unleashed, absolutely important, absolutely wonderful, and absolutely the first step. We need to do exactly more of that. So there's, there's, a, there's a good story as, as, as the part of this as well. So let's go back to the beginning, 1895. <laughs> uh, and that's when this, uh, uh, this Brit uh, uh, slash Italian uh, Guglielmo Marconi puts two radios together and without any wire between them communicates and um, that's where it starts. Two radios, one message. And uh, the science is off. But it's not off very quickly. Why? Because there aren't that many radios. Things remain pretty quiet. And uh, there were some applications that came into the marketplace and people used airwaves. No real need for law, no real need for property rights. Uh, even in 1912, which famously was a wireless event, uh, this is uh, something that's famous to many Americans because of the technology pioneer, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, in fact, there wasn't too much wireless. There wasn't congestion or conflict. There was too little wireless. And more wireless would have helped uh, uh, communicate with the Carpathia to get uh, uh, more of the survivors uh, uh, to safety. So there was an interest, and in fact there was a law uh, inspired by the Titanic uh, disaster, uh, the 1912 Radio Act, uh, which actually put into place uh, a very minimalist regulatory framework uh, that assigned the Department of Commerce uh, oversight for minimizing interference in the airwaves, and in fact that regulatory system was not because of the lack of uh, conflict at that point, did not seem very important at the time. In fact, the important part of the 1912 Radio Act was that it required ships at sea to have fully trained uh, radio operators 24-7 uh, so that they could communicate in the case of a disaster. Things changed when the market changed. And uh, one way to, to nail that down is to look at the first broadcasting station in the United States to broadcast continuously. 
This had been an experiment. Now there was actually a business model. KDKA in Pittsburgh decided to put out uh, blanket communications in the area, and this was a victory for vertical integration. How do you get the first radio station when there are no radio receivers? Why do you build radio receivers if there's no radio stations? Well, Westinghouse figures out a way to sell receivers and build demand for the receivers they sell. This is vertical integration in action. And the idea of actually putting out a multi-directional signal to just blanket at high power emissions to blanket an entire metropolitan area is such an enthralling idea that within two years there are 500 of these radio stations all over the United States and a new industry is born and new conflicts arise. New conflicts arise. So this is, this is what happens when you get a business model changing what had been a very quiet space. And of course, it's a great leap forward for society. Now to a regulator, it's disaster. Now we have conflicts. Well, you had conflicts before in the sense that you just didn't use the radio space very effectively. That's a conflict. You're suppressing all the valuable stuff that might emerge. Well, at that point in time, the suppression was benign. Nobody had thought about how to do this. Well, now, now people did think about it, and conflicts emerged. So there is a demand for law. There's a demand for property rights. And um, uh, the story is that there was instantly etheric bedlam. That's not my term. It came from the US Navy, but I love that. I love the term etheric bedlam. Sounds like a party I want to go to. Uh, but uh, uh, the story that's been handed down is that instantly there was a disaster in the marketplace. And um, that story comes to us from some reputable uh, sources. And um, uh, one of them is the United States Supreme Court in decisions in 1943 and thereafter. They had this view, uh, which I call myth calculation. Now that's the funny part of my talk, people. So. If you're going to be that way, I'll just <laughs> not have time for those. Anyway, so this is, this is how they wrote this up. Before 1927, the allocation of frequencies uh, resulted in chaos uh, because it was left to the private sector. It became apparent that broadcasting frequencies were a scarce resource whose use could be regulated and rationalized only by the government. Uh, without the government control, the medium would be of a little use because of a cacophony of competing voices. Now, a few years later, this, by the way, was uh, the 1969 uh, uh, language of Red Lion, but they were echoing the 1943 NBC decision on that. Um, this idea that scarcity was unique to the airways and needed a special regulatory regime, uh, that offended Ronald Coase who was otherwise a very uh, low-key uh, British intellectual teaching in the United States um, by the 1950s. And um, Coase actually investigated this and, and hypothesized. He couldn't really see this developing because markets to allocate spectrum were not visible to him when he wrote this in the 1950s. But he thought maybe property rights could be attached to frequencies and and there could be markets allocating the frequencies rather than a central administrator, as had been uh, put forward by the Supreme Court. And so he took on that scarcity concept and did a very nice job with it, ending up uh, writing a very famous paper 
1959, the following year, the editors who had published it at the Journal of Law and Economics actually asked Coase to explain his error. They thought it was an error not to understand how much tragedy of the commons there would be, an externality problem with having private markets allocate spectrum. And so they said, why don't you explain that error? And he wrote a paper called The Problem of Social Costs. It became the most highly cited paper in the social sciences and ended up winning him a Nobel Prize in <coughs> economics. That's not what offended me about the Supreme Court. Here's what offended me, the history. They said there was chaos in cacophony. And yes, by the way, if you're wondering to yourself, don't Google it. The Supreme Court misspelled cacophony. Okay, there you have it. <laughs> so all my subsequent typos. Just remember the Supreme Court does it too. Okay. In fact, it was wrong. And I won't give you many diagrams like this. But radio set sales took off in the 1920s prior to 1927. By 1926, there were nearly 5 million households that had a radio. And by the way, the radios were big and expensive. And radio was going crazy during this period. Don't worry about the graphics. Here's a better way to see it. By 1924, uh, Madison Avenue had dubbed the holiday season Radio Christmas. And even grandma is Christmas shopping for a radio. Um, by 1925... Young gentlemen got into the Radio Act when they found out that it was, uh, it was so popular. And by 1926, <laughs> by 1926, you can see how much, how much farther we've come in, in terms of gender equity. Uh, this is a picture of a, uh, a bride being abandoned on her wedding night uh, by uh, a groom who's now playing with his radio. Of course, in 2015, they'd both be playing with their smartphones and ignoring each other. So I think uh, we've, we've made progress on that front. Um, anyway, so radio's going crazy through these years. Before there is a radio act to have the central administration system, and what was, what, what was governing the airways? Well, there was a regulatory regime under the 1912 Act, which allowed the Department of Commerce to minimize interference. There were... Uh, priority and use rules that came under common law, uh, called many different things, right of user, right of first appropriation, uh, squatter sovereignty, adverse possession, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the Department of Commerce, headed by uh, Herbert Hoover, later became president and was very familiar with the technology, was a, a well-known engineer, a very successful engineer in the private sector before he went into public service. Uh, the Department of Commerce under Hoover was enforcing these first-come, first-served property rights to frequencies. And under that, uh, uh, oops, under that system, we had not chaos and not cacophony. We had law. And if you don't believe me, and if you don't believe what Hoover and his Department of Commerce was saying at the time, you will believe the Word of God. And it comes from Reverend Amy Semple McPherson. If you don't know her, she's from Los Angeles and had this huge Angelus temple that did thousands of people per day in, in uh, three sermons per day. And um, uh, being from Los Angeles, I, I think I feel a communion with her here. But anyway, um, she, um, she had a radio station that she purchased in a secondary market in 1923 and was broadcasting out in Los Angeles. And she was told by the Department of Commerce to get back on her actual wavelength. And here's the correspondence that went from Reverend McPherson to Mr. Hoover. Please order your minions of Satan to leave my station alone. 
You cannot expect the Almighty to abide by your wavelength nonsense. When I offer my prayers to him, I must fit into his reception, open the station at once. So she moved. She got back where she had the prior use rights. This was a system of law. It was not chaotic, and the rules were enforced, but there were political interests in going a different way on this. The system actually worked well and too well because Hoover and others in the United States Senate and in the industry had been agitating to get more political discretion over how we actually regulate it. And legislation had actually been stalled since 1921. The system worked too well. Hoover made the comment, you know, I'm asking for legislation from Congress. People say, well, the system's working. Why do we need to fix it? So what happens, uh, the, and, and this is why, the regulators particularly wanted to, some influence over broadcast content. The incumbent radio station owners wanted to prevent new entry into the marketplace, which they could do if they had some more regulation. Um, and strategically, Hoover actually ended enforcement famously at the time, July 9, 1926, the press release, the press conference. Um, and there ensued the period of the breakdown of the law where the Department of Commerce would not enforce property rights to radio. There were about 550 stations on the air at the time. Within a few months, 200 new stations came in. Some stations moved. And there were some conflicts. There were some conflicts. Uh, that raised the demand for regulation. No question about it. And in fact, after years of uh, uh, gridlock, uh, Republicans and Democrats came together and compromised. By the way, the real gridlock at the time was not so much Democrat versus Republican, it was House versus Senate. The Senate likes a commission, members nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate. The House wanted the Department of Commerce to actually do the regulation. They were Republicans, they were in Republican administration, they thought that would be better. So it was House versus Senate was the stagnation uh, on, on the legislation. Anyway, Coolidge goes ahead and signs the Radio Act, compromise that comes February 23, 1927. So, the Radio Act replaces the emerging priority and use rules with what is called a public interest standard. Okay, that preempts frequency ownership. In fact, part of the law, it's still with us, says that any licensee that is allowed to broadcast or use airways in the United States has to explicitly give up any vested claims, any property interests in radio spectrum. That, that, that actually, that, that rule was passed even prior to the Radio Act and then included in it. Um, so this vests administrative control in a, in a regulatory agency. There's lots of rent-seeking that goes on to, to, uh, from, from interest groups that want rules to favor their particular industry. Uh, and incumbent radio stations get entry barriers. Okay, you can't compete without a license. Incumbent policy makers got a lot of discretion, particularly over content in this new, very influential medium of public opinion. So there was, a, in political and economic terms, there was now a new platform for creating and distributing rents that was popular amongst decision makers that were influential in that market. And 1927 gives us the structure of regulation we have today, still the way we allocate frequencies. Now. With all the problems, and we're going to talk about some of them, that this system of rigid, top-down administrative control has given us, if there were no alternative, there would be no alternative. And the chaos and cacophony would, would, would have to be solved in this way. 
Okay, but there was an alternative. In fact, the alternative was seen in that marketplace of the 1920s. And uh, much to my amazement, I just found this yesterday, um, there, there was, there, I mean, I, I, I've long talked about a court case in, 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 in Chicago. Where, where are they going to figure out property rights? Chicago. And they figured out property rights to Chicago in a court case, an actual court case, during the period of the breakdown of the law, when WGN, owned by the Chicago Tribune, world's greatest newspaper is WGN, uh, WGN felt it was being encroached upon during the period of the breakdown of the law, no Department of Commerce to complain to, and they actually brought a lawsuit under common law in a state court against uh, the Oak Leaves Broadcasting Company, for getting too close. Oak Leaves was owned by a dance hall, broadcast dance music. And um, uh, they went to court. They went to trial in, in Cook County, Chicago, Cook County, Illinois. And much to my amazement yesterday, I decided to Google Oak Leaves WGN, and what did I find? This! <laughs> this, this blew me away. I mean, hats off to Google for this. That's what pops up. I didn't even have to go to images. Um, court fixes radio rights on air. WGN wins. Wavelength decision sets U.S. President, uh, precedent. Aerial property rights defined. And, of course, the best thing about this, this, this is uh, November 13, 1926, Chicago Daily Tribune, world's greatest newspaper. Uh, the greatest thing, of course, is if you go back and get a headline from a Chicago newspaper that's almost 100 years old, of course the headline is going to be indict a municipal judge. <coughs> Grand jury named 74. <laughs> it, it was a prohibition case. <laughs> you know, it's nice if we have that kind of continuity in America. That, uh, uh, <laughs> But here oh, it is. Look at the headline on the left, too. <laughs> Nicaragua has USDA against Western Reds. Everything, everything seems very stable in this environment. Anyway, uh, so, so this, is, this, 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 this is what we had. We had a property rights environment. Now, uh, did it actually set a U.S. president? Of course not. It was, a, it was a state court in Illinois. But this is where things were headed. And in fact, the decision, which was unpublished in Illinois, got published in the congressional record. And Senator Dill from the state of Washington, who was the sponsor of the 27 Radio Act, did tell his colleagues, you know, on the floor of the Senate, look, we've been dithering. We have to get law. Otherwise, property rights are going to be established and it'll be harder to regulate. So let's get this thing, let's get this show on the road. That was uh, December 10th, 1926. And by February 23rd, they had a bill on uh, Coolidge's desk that he signed, 1927. Now, this is just from the... From the, from the newspaper, aerial property rights defined. Anyway, that's from the newspaper story. You can Google it. So here's where we get the political spectrum. Okay, we're going to give up the property rules, and we're going to go to an administrative agency to, to do something that, of course, is very socially useful, which is to pre uh, prevent this uncoordinated tragedy of the commons where you dissipate something valuable like radio spectrum because there's not, uh, there's not clear uh, rules of the road. Uh, but we, we adopted this particular very specific and some might say narrow form of coordination where the regulator determines how wireless services are crafted uh, and offered to the market, which technologies are used to supply them, the business models they use. A broadcaster has to be, uh, say, advertising supported, can't be subscription. 
Uh, ownership, can't have foreign ownership, can't have these kinds of owners, have to have those kinds of owners. Content rules, equal time rule, fairness doctrine, things of that nature. And of course, the fact that you need a license to come in that is given out in the public interest, that has a lot of discretion uh, for the regulator, that restricts entry and it restricts rivalry between firms. A firm that's already in, say, the broadcasting, the radio broadcasting business, might have a better technology. It cannot supply it because it's not specified in the license. It has to go to the regulator and ask permission. So that's where we get this uh, phrase that's used by many uh, regulators even. Uh, you, you see it in a lot of FCC uh, uh, statements over the years. Mother may I. Anything new has to be okayed explicitly in a rulemaking. And that's a tax on innovation, quite obviously an administrative expense but also a political free-for-all because it creates an obstacle course where uh, the innovator, the entrepreneur that wants to do something new and competitive in the market has to justify this uh, change, uh, which may be creative destruction and may wreak havoc and disrupt incumbents, has to explain and defend it against the, uh, the rival view. So a lot of the book uh, does explain some of the, <laughs> some, some of the actual... Uh, uh, outcomes, uh, when you have had attempts at entry by innovative people, and I'll run through hopefully very quickly just a couple of these that I know some uh, people have favorite stories about the silence of the entrance. And uh, here, here are three that are my, my favorites maybe from the book. Professor Armstrong was a wonder kind. He went to uh, Columbia University, and by the time he had graduated in engineering, he had patents. And uh, he was already... Uh, uh, wealthy such that when he was appointed a professor just after graduating, he very quickly went into a dollar-a-year environment where he got to dictate what classes he taught and what lab he would work in. So that's uh, Armstrong in 1922. He graduated about 1914 from Columbia. And um, uh, one of the things I like about Armstrong, he was an inventor in wireless, one of the key uh, instrumental figures in early AM radio. And... Um, in 1923, he got married, and on the honeymoon, he gave his wife, <laughs> uh, when I was growing up, this would be called a transistor radio, although, <laughs> uh, th this is a boombox, <laughs> more contemporary uh, uh, thing. So anyway, he's out there in the, in, in the sun. Maybe he shouldn't have been so much in the sun, and I'll tell you why. In the 1930s, he goes on to invent a new technology called FM, frequency modulation radio, and it is fantastic. Uh, and he gets it patented in 1933 and shows it off to the other the engineers in New York. And um, it is cutting edge in terms of its high fidelity. And um, it's, it, I mean, do the experiment yourself. Go into any uh, high-rise hotel the next time you stay in one. Turn on the radio in the room and go to AM, if they still have AM on the dial, and lis listen to what you get there and then switch over to FM and listen to what you get there. That's the way to do the experiment. Well, anyway, he tried to get frequency space for this, went to the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC at first said it wouldn't work because they asked their engineers, and they asked the RCA engineers, and, uh, you know, so he had trouble. He finally got experimental licenses, and by 1940-41, he actually was able to do a few, a few stations around the country. Then the war, and, 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 and several hundred thousand radio receivers are purchased. In World War II, all that civilian production stops, and the reason his, he's a major in the U.S. Army is because he goes, serves the U.S. Army, and patriotically signs over all of his uh, uh, patents and does uh, cutting-edge work for U.S. radio communications, patents, 
uh, was it, Th Patton's Third Army has th these cutting edge new radios. They were going so fast they couldn't use wires. Uh, that's the story. Uh, but is, is, he's, he's very helpful in the war effort. Uh, but all production of FM radio stops at that point. He comes back, and what happens? The FCC completely eliminates the 1940 allocation for FM radio, which was 42 to 50 megahertz. And they did it on the grounds that sunspots, I'm not making this up, sunspots would uniquely interfere with 42 to 50 megahertz. The government's own experts said this was nonsense. Armstrong who would have been the first one to say, get us off of 42 to 50 megahertz if there had been sunspot interference, said it was nonsense. And he fought desperately to no avail. The FCC actually wanted to get that stuff out of there and do other stuff with it for television and other things. And they, they, actually, got rid of, um, they actually got rid of the entire allocation and said, no, you're in a new spot, 88 to 108. Now, this totally appropriated the entire industry. And everybody who had bought one of these expensive receivers for FM was boasting about how great it was. What do you think the next sales call's like? You know that hugely expensive receiver you bought in 1941? We want you to buy a new one now. In fact, there weren't any new ones yet. There was several years before they developed the consumer premises equipment. Anyway, this destroyed FM radio for years, and in fact, it wasn't until the 1960s that FM got back on its feet. Finally, by the middle 70s, they totally surpassed AM radio and leave it in the dust. It's, it's, it's a great technology. Uh, unfortunately for... Uh, General Armstrong, excuse me, uh, Major Armstrong, uh, he didn't make it that far uh, because be between the FCC disruption of his technology, his baby FM radio, and some patent disputes uh, that were ongoing with RCA and others, um, he uh, uh, committed suicide in 1951. He got in formal attire and walked out of his 11th floor apartment on the Upper West Side of New York. Uh, his widow... Uh, hung with the patent suits and became very wealthy in 1966 when she essentially um, collected from RCA on the patents. Um, uh, so unfortunately, uh, uh, Professor and, and Major Armstrong to make it. By the way, this is a picture of an old uh, receiver. FM, okay, AM is about where, where it always was. FM is 42 to 50. Now, uh, the DuMont network was a great innovative television network launched when there were just temporary experimental licenses, uh, about 100 of them, uh, distributed by the Federal Communications Commission. Again, television was disrupted by World War II, of course. And in 1946, television pioneer Alan DuMont actually launched a fourth network to compete with what we know as the network triopoly, ABC, CBS, NBC. And um, when it came time for the FCC to get serious about what it was going to do to, to, to give out uh, TV licenses, what became the TV allocation table in 1952, Dumont put forward a plan that would allow there to be at least four or five national networks. The FCC rejected that. Why did the FCC reject that? They wanted to have localism as the policy. Every city, gets, every city of size gets a license. This is very popular with Congress, by the way. I won't go into the politics of it. But when you have every city getting a license, you can't have as many stations per market. So the trade-off is between localism and competition. And the localism policy won. And who put forward the localism policy? Yes, <laughs> the incumbents. 
primarily CBS, and they developed it. Dumont put together a very well-engineered policy to allow there to be more. The FCC chose CBS over Dumont. By 1955, Dumont can't get on enough, and enough TV sets in the United States to have national coverage, and it's gone. There it is. And you have, you have to admit, that's the coolest logo for any broadcast station ever in the history of the world right there. Uh, Captain America, by the way, was one of their shows. And the Honeymooners they launched, uh, which went uh, to another network. Uh, but they had a lot of great innovative programming. They were gone in 1955. Um, Low-power FM radio, I'll quickly talk about this is in our lifetimes. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s, low-power FM radio. Why not use all these uh, uh, dead spots in the FM dial to have you know, lo localized radio and so forth? And in fact, I actually did an estimation once. Given the FCC's interference rules, there are at least 100,000 slots for this low-power radio stuff. Uh, and um, you know, the signals don't go very far. They don't interfere very much. Um, through a lot of uh, pain and torment um, over the next couple, three years, uh, the FCC actually managed to put out rules that attracted somewhere less than 1,000 stations, none in the top 279 markets. Okay, it has to be in the non-market areas. Okay, and in fact, the signals only go about three miles. Uh, tiny audiences, and almost even worse, the FCC rules are you can't be a for-profit station, you can't run ads, and even if you're a non-profit, you can't own more than one station. So no economies of scale. And by the way, these are the rules that the advocates of, of the, uh, the low-power uh, licenses wanted. So. The broadcast incumbents fought this, of course, but the real, the real death here uh, was by the advocates that had all these restrictive uh, rules. Now, the little tag on this is, while the broad incumbent broadcast radio station said there was no room for anything, otherwise there would be terrible interference, in 2002, we got something called HD radio. <laughs> and that allows each FM radio station to do up to three digital radio. Full power broadcasts. Now, the actual transmissions are done within the 200 kilohertz allocation given to the existing licensees. They're in favor of it. They can manage the interference and they can control that. And in fact, uh, the full power licensees uh, were in favor of this policy. It was a strategic response to satellite radio, which they were uh, opposed to and took some of their market share. And as long as they were in charge of it and they got the benefit, all of a sudden we found these 30,000 new slots for full power when we haven't been able to fit 1,000 low-power radio stations in. Okay, when you change the incentives, you change the property rules, yeah, you get different products. I'm not opposed to HD radio, by the way. But you can see how limiting it is just to have these, these top-down rules come in, in what are called public interest allocations. And you get... Very reliable outcomes, a lot, of, a lot of the book is spent on this, very hostile to economic growth, to innovation, and in fact, one of the amazing things is, it doesn't make any difference if you're talking left, right, Republican, Democrat, from, from the analytical level, there is wide consensus that we have very disappointing outcomes with this kind of top-down regulation. How do we deal with that? How do we improve it? Well, if you go through this history, you find that there are two competing regulatory paradigms. And the first one 
comes from the most famous speech ever given by a U.S. regulator. And who would that be? What would that be? Minnow. Newton Minnow. There it is. Chairman of the FCC, 1961 to 1963. Goes to Las Vegas. Gives a speech to the National Association of Broadcasters, May 9th, 1961. While television is good, nothing is better. First, first of all, come on. <laughs> that sounds like me addicted to a remote control. Okay, you got, you got to, you got to get, get a life. Anyway, uh, but when television is bad, nothing is worse. Uh, you know, it just it ruins your life. Your, your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you observe is a vast wasteland. Um, this describes my behavior last Saturday, and when I got done, when I got done, I said, those were some great football games, actually, but he's entitled to his opinion. Uh, you will see a profession, uh, procession of game shows, formula comedies, uh, Western bad men, Western good men, private eye games for more violence, cartoons, endlessly commercials, many screenings, Julian and Finney. Okay. So he didn't like what was on. So what was he going to do about it? Well, what did he say he was going to do about it? It's a famous speech. What was the policy action? None. Well, I have to tell you, he did make the front page of newspapers all over the country. And he made a big hit in the broadcasting industry. And in fact, yeah, the Gilligan's Island named their boat after him, the USS Minnow. Or the SS Minnow, right? Anyway, so uh, he was hailed as a prophet. Uh, books, lectures, uh, you know, 50 years later. 50th anniversary lectures and essays. What was the takeaway? What was the policy? Uh, the FCC chairman threatened to have new forms for renewal that would be much tougher and scrutinized much more intensively than the old forms for renewal of the TV stations. Well, what happened to those new forms? No new forms. Bush 41 said no new taxes. No new forms. Instead, almost as soon as the chairman got back to Washington from Las Vegas, there was a shift in policy, and it was called Carter Mountain. The FCC had not gotten involved with regulating cable. They had explicitly denied that they had jurisdiction over cable, and there would be no good served by regulating it. It was local, it was wired, it didn't, you know, it wasn't interstate. But in 1962, the FCC, under Chairman Minow, with Minnow voting with the majority, actually changed its mind and denied a microwave license to a company that wanted to send video to a market where a cable operator would take the video and put it on locally. Now, the common carrier rules are supposed to apply to microwave, which is what this operation was, and, the FCC, and, and under common carriage, you're not supposed to be concerned with the content. The FCC was very concerned with the content and denied the license. And Carter Mountain started a multi-year regulatory, and there were 64, 65, 66, 68. Uh, there was a series of uh, FCC orders that came out that proclaimed that audience siphoning would take place, meaning broadcasters would lose market share to upstart competitors in cable, and that would reduce the FCC's ability to enforce the public interest because the TV stations would be less profitable, and all the good things that TV was providing, like news and public affairs 
and information about candidates for president, that would be lost and democracy would suffer. We've got to exclude cable. Okay? So the FCC now shifts, takes over new territory, declares that it's ancillary to their regulation. Sound familiar, Rich? Claims that it's ancillary to their uh, undeniable uh, reg- uh, jurisdiction over broadcast licenses. Is that a typo? Ancillarity? Yeah. <laughs> or is that what it was actually? The- oh, no, that was, yeah, that was not only did the FCC claim it, it's what the court said, okay, we're going to uphold your jurisdiction over cable on the ancillarity doctrine. And it blocked cable TV and thwarted the upstart uh, to uh, protect the public interest in television. By the way, it asserted that, F- the, that uh, cable would never be everywhere, just be a niche product that would never come in and, and really provide public interest benefits. It would only be ancillary to broadcasting. And to save broadcast news, public affairs educational programs, it had to keep. Now, the poster boy for this was UHF television that was then uh, being uh, used at at some level and and later uh, for educational, what was then called educational TV, now called non-commercial or public TV. And by the way, this is in the era when it was 15 minutes of nightly news. That was all the educational programming you got from the commercial broadcasters. And in fact, uh, Edward J. Epstein wrote a great book on this in the 70s called The News from Nowhere because it was so uh, noncommittal and uh, above it all and uh, there, was, there was no, no opinion and, and no color to it. And not much of anything else, by the way. One of the broadcast executives had bragged that um, we don't have a perspective. We give you the news from nowhere. And this is what the FCC was protecting. Not, not much news from nowhere, by the way. So that's the vast wasteland model. We can hector the industry. We can control the margins. We can tighten up licensing with new forms that we might not get around to. And um, that's it. Now, there's a competing policy paradigm. And I've got a room full of experts here. I know you're experts. Don't deny it. And um, you're interested students of spectrum regulation. What's the competing paradigm challenging the vast wasteland. What's the second most famous thing ever said by an FCC chair? <laughs> now, I'm asserting this. <laughs> you may want to you may want to have your you know, if you started when you were 5, you could have a book by now too. Unthink- uh, unthinkable. Unthinkable. Oh, <laughs> unthinkable. Re-hunt. Okay, well, that's a competing, competing uh, paradigm to my competing paradigm. Not, not the one I have. <laughs> Peter Pitch, do you have an idea? I do. <laughs> oh, you look too young to know about toasters. So here it is, Interview in Reason Magazine, 1981. No, I didn't do the interview. Um, Mark Fowler says, television is just another appliance. It's a toaster with pictures. Okay? Now... Uh, this reminds me actually very much of uh, post-communist uh, uh, policy pronouncements in e- Eastern Europe where people were saying, we want to regularize the economy. We don't want to have this sort of top-down administrative control. We want to just make, you know, we, we want our economy to, to be normal. Fowler's saying we want wireless communications just to be a normal part of the economy, just like a toaster. It's just, it has pictures, but it's, it's just another consumer product. 
consumers, vote with their dollars, suppliers compete, and that'll be a better result. That's what his, well, <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead and search on Fowler <laughs> Toaster and, and, uh, and, and cover your eyes. You'll get, you'll get a lot of abuse uh, in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your search returns. Um, it's still mocked and derided as something that was terrible. But I take it seriously. I take it seriously as an alternative. And in fact, um, it was a pronouncement that minimalist regulation would be better. Yes, there should be rules in place to make sure that tragedy of the commons and, uh, does not occur and coordination can occur. It's very useful and productive for society. And um, in fact, uh, some of it was already going, you know, you, uh, what you could say about Fowler is he was, you know, he was paying attention to what happened in the 70s. Finally, by the deregulation wave of the middle 70s, the Ford and Carter administration and the FCCs under them were really putting forward a much more liberal paradigm with respect to cable TV. And in fact, the courts got in on it and finally turned on the FCC. So cable deregulation was already going fairly well by 1981. Cable was starting to compete and wire the country. But now wireless. Wireless gets the toaster model. Minimalist regulation comes. 1985, an important event comes in unlicensed, when in fact on a directive that originally was launched from the Carter White House, uh, Fred Kahn, economist and deregulator Fred Kahn, puts out, puts out the word at, to the FCC, find something that's suppressed in the market and deregulate it. And what happens is, something that doesn't seem to have much effect early on, but there were a whole family of new emerging technologies, generally called spread spectrum, that were liberalized for the use of unlicensed. And they become very important uh, for local area networks. Uh, years, decades later, when we got broadband networks, uh, wiring America uh, and bringing uh, uh, routers and, and modems to, uh, to homes and businesses by the tens of millions. In 1988 and 93, and these dates are somewhat arbitrary, lots of things are happening in here, but during the 80s, uh, lots of emphasis in trying to relax the constraints in the licenses. Now, the fact that this happens in the mobile market, and these are cellular licenses that are specifically being deregulated, is very important, a very much part of the story. Uh, won't get into all of the elements and the politics of that right here, but for the new industry that was just emerging and finally, finally emerging, okay, cellular is not new. Cellular is 1946-47 at Bell Labs. Doesn't get into the market till the 1980s. That gives you a little estimate on regulatory lag. Um, but when mobile finally gets there, Regulators don't have the interest. The policymakers don't have the interest. There's no real content. It's a common carrier service. There's no content to influence. Okay, plus it's complicated. It's not a transmitter that goes up in one spot at a certain height, a certain power, and just blasts away with a one-way communication with receivers on the other end. Mobile's two-way, thousands of base stations in the typical system, different technologies coming and going very quickly. Lots of coordination with mobile elements in the network. There's a lot of administrative overhead that just doesn't seem to be worth the candle to the regulators. That's to the side. For whatever reason, there's a very substantial liberalization when mobile comes in the market. And new rules, a new toaster model is applied to wireless. And so the licenses 
gravitate fairly quickly here, by the 1990s anyway, to spectrum permits, de facto spectrum ownership. Still illegal explicitly in the law, but in fact, the spectrum that's allocated to the cellular licenses is under the domain of the licensee. The carriers that get the license, they can determine what technologies are used. They can determine the business models, the pricing certainly, the, um, you know, the applications, the architecture of the network, where the base stations go. They can you know, take power up here, take power down there. They coordinate the new devices coming in and the new applications and how all these services fit together. That is delegated to the market, not planned at the regulatory agency. Okay? Now, this happens in the U.S. and it happens around the world. Auctions come in, of course, in the 1990s. The U.S. is not first, but very one of the first. Um, and these liberal licenses that are now being issued really create tiny FCCs, private, competitive, for-profit FCCs that get to regulate their own spaces. And that allows the market to allocate spectrum. That means that innovators don't have to go to the government and ask mother may I. They can go to competitors in the market and say, I've got an, app, an idea for a wireless app. Can I do it on your network? So these competing networks, they coordinate, they manage interference, and they create investment opportunities for themselves and uh, complements. And um, their architectures very quickly develop and uh, become platforms for all kinds of things that nobody had ever anticipated. So, uh, with some interesting um, uh, translation issues there, uh, I, I, uh, I, I do something at a very high level that may, may offend some of you more empirically oriented people. What happens if we just take these broad 20-year swaths of time and see which model, the vast wasteland or the uh, toaster model is doing the best. In 1945, we had four TV networks. 20 years later, we had three in commercial broadcasting. In 1980, we had three cable television networks. And in uh, 2000, we had uh, uh, over 100. Of course, today we have about 1,000. Um, and I watch each one. Harold doesn't watch any of them, and I've got to do my part plus his. Um, you look at devices. Yeah, there was progress between 1941 when the FCC set the analog TV standard. Uh, in 1961, we got color and we got remote controls. It's not nothing. You know, it's technological progress in electronics. This is 87 to 2007, technological progress in the less regulated market. Okay, I think, it, I think it's impressive. Um, and remember, this is still the old model. This is before the toasters come in. It's taken, it's taken decades to get to Marty Cooper in the first cell phone call in New York in 1973. Um, but when the 80s and 90s come and we liberalize and get those licenses and that basically that spectrum market allocation out, it, it happens fairly rapidly. And of course, it's not just new devices. It's everything that goes on the devices. And um, it's what goes around the world. In general, in 1990, even 1995, it's not too much of a generalization to look at the world from space and say nobody has a phone. Because even fixed line telephony was a small fraction of the people on the planet. Okay? 
But when this more liberal system, and by the way, when I talk about international, and I'm just giving a few words to it here, there's a little more in the book, we're talking about uh, countries, both in the developed and the developing sectors, that had state phone monopolies. Okay, we're talking about countries like England, Canada, Japan, and Germany, state monopolies. With mobile, they're finally getting not only private entry into the marketplace, but competitors. Okay, this is revolutionary. In the 1970s, we had a debate, a long regulatory debate in the U.S. on cellular as to whether or not there could be two cellular competitors in a market. The original conclusion of the U.S. in 74 was no. There can only be one because of the natural monopoly. Oh, and by the way, the mobile operator had to be owned by AT&T because it had to be vertically integrated with Ma Bell, otherwise it couldn't stand on its own. Okay? By the 80s, we find out that private competition can work. By the 90s, we have multiple entrants coming into the market, and this goes worldwide. This is private competition for the first time in Spectrum, and you're getting amazing, okay, by 2015, obviously, wireless is dominant. You see by about 2005, the number of fixed line, this is fixed line on the top, uh, well, <laughs> it starts on the top, the darker line, and then the, the red line uh, is, is wireless, and this, this is on the, uh, this is 6 billion subscribers. Uh, anyway, by the time we get to 2015, around the world, of course, wireless has become dominant. More people today own cell phones than own toothbrushes. I'm not trying to freak you out but, uh, about people not brushing their teeth, but uh, uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing sprint, and, and, and it comes with liberalization. By the way, I do talk a little bit about how far can you go on this liberalization. Well, in some countries around the world, like Guatemala in 1996, they actually have a property right in radio spectrum called a TUF, uh, which is Titolo de Usufructo de Frequencia. And yes, I do speak Spanish ex exactly that well. Um, uh, th th this is it. it it's, it's, the, it's the band. It's, it's the uh, maximum emitted uh, uh, power anywhere in the band and at the margins of the band and uh, the dates. And on the back, like a pink slip to a car, it has places the current owner can sign off and a new owner can, can come in in place. Th this is a property right to use the frequencies. And it's worked very well. I wrote a paper a few years ago on this. Uh, it, it, it turns out the prices in Guatemala are very low. They got a lot of competition compared to peer countries um, in Central America and even throughout Latin America. It, it's a fairly poor country, but it's a very progressive country in terms of mobile phone service because they got the property rights in the market. They're being used. There's competition. And there's no chaos. This is proof of concept that the 1920s in the United States were not an illusion. You can do it through very liberal reforms. And by the way, the thing that I like, the graphic I like on this, is in 2010, if you had a Kindle and you wanted to use it around the world, yes, you would use mobile networks to download books, content. And the mobile operator was totally seamless to you. you would, this is a deal arranged by Amazon, the owner of Kimble, uh, Kin, uh, Kindles, and the content and they would just contract with a Sprint or an AT&T or whoever it is around the world to give you your download. And Kindle maintained a map, a global map. Where can you get the best downloads? 2G or 3G at the time were the options for, for your, your Kindle downloads. Okay, here's the map for Central America. Now the white space means you can't get a download. The light purple 
means you can get a 2G download. Might work, might not. 3G is the dark purple. Now, throughout Mexico, it's mostly white. There's some purple, one carrier. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guess who, was on, who owned that carrier. In Mexico City, offered the service. Uh, around it, a little bit of uh, 2G, a lot of white space. A lot of white space in Nicaragua and Honduras. Uh, even in Costa Rica, which is a much wealthier country, Guatemala's got the, the purple. Now, El Salvador has a lot of 2G and some 3G. They did a similar liberalization, um, not quite as far-reaching. But anyway, it's amazing that a poor country uh, that was, is not very liberal on economic policy, has a long way to go on a lot of economic policy, actually, just by a, a sort of a quirk of their move to democracy in the mid-'90s, actually got a very liberal spectrum policy and it, and, it, and it offers proof of concept. This stuff actually worked. So that's, that's just a nice little, uh, nice little thing. Anyway, we still operate under the 27 Radio Act. We still have these top-down limits on how much spectrum we can have. Uh, and, and we'd like to do a lot better. And we try to do a lot better. And in fact, there is policy innovation today. And there are incentive auctions. Some of you are well aware of what the FCC is trying to do to move spectrum out of the broadcast to TV and into um, make it available, flexible use licenses, available for mobile and other things. But, uh, you know, in the book, I, I try to get us to think more uh, aggressively um, and carefully about pushing that process forward. Deregulate the deregulation, as Alfred Kahn, the late, Fred, the late great Fred Kahn, uh, once suggested. Now, with incentive auctions, I do want to say this is a very important policy pivot. It comes from the National Broadband Plan 2010. The government is now buying back its own licenses. Now, try to explain that to somebody who doesn't know anything about spectrum policy. Okay? They're, inter they're issued in the public interest. They can be recalled under the public interest. They can be non-renewed. Renewed or not renewed under the public interest standard. But we can't use the public interest standard. And the government correctly concedes that. Politically, it's just impossible. So there are advantages to some streamlined strategies, including this two-sided auction the FCC is doing. Rather than try to just force it, the reallocation of spectrum through with brute force, I agree very much. We need to find better strategies. But one that I had recommended, and still uh, one that still merits consideration, just to give out overlays. In other words, give out new property rights that allow new owners to use all the spectrum, in this case the TV band, could be anywhere else, and grandfather, vest, all the current users and allow the new licensees to make deals, partner, pay off the incumbents to rearrange, reconfigure the spectrum use. Redo the wireless markets by simply putting those new rights to use all the spectrum in a flexible way for anything that doesn't spill outside the band and allow the market to do the transition rather than the market making by the FCC and the incentive auction. We could actually do this for the entire TV band, which is now 49 channels or 294 megahertz, a very big swath. The FCC actually concedes that something like this has to take place because now they've adopted, in essence, an overlay methodology even in the incentive auction. I won't say anything more about that here. And I just will uh, also note that these, these kinds of auctions can, be, can, can allocate spectrum for what is known as license, that's generally used for mobile today. It can also for, be for unlicensed, that the, uh, firms or 
trade associations or nonprofit organizations uh, can, can actually purchase rights and make them available for uh, sort of plug-and-play use that we, uh, uh, you know, associate with things like Wi-Fi. Anyway, the FCC is up to uh, uh, its current things, um, its current uh, incentive auction program. It's, it's trying to overcome what it recognized in the National Broadband Plan 2010 as a 6 to 13 year delay in spectrum allocations. Okay. Now the TV band, when the FCC started the National Broadband Plan in 2009, had 49 channels, 294 megahertz, and they're still there. Okay, that's still, in, that's six, now it's going to be seven years ago uh, in February when this proceeding started. So we're, we're already into the six to 13 year delay. Um, in 2010, the FCC said it wanted to take 120 megahertz from TV, move it to mobile. Um, it's taken a while to do that. We have an auction scheduled for next year, 2016. Uh, the target may be something closer to 70. We don't know. And, and um, uh, it depends on market bids. We'll see. The FCC believes that this will be available about 2019, the actual uh, transition. It might be sooner than that. I'm not sure it's going to take that long because for other reasons it might, might actually go faster than that. But anyway, that's the FCC position on this. And um, what, what I'm arguing is that if you just had overlays, you could actually... Uh, you, you could actually get access to the entire 294 megahertz. Uh, and I put this forward actually in 2009. But uh, if you want to get rid of over-the-air TV, one, a government program to do it would be to just put everybody on a satellite broadcast uh, reception. And uh, about $3 billion will do that. We only have 10 million households that rely on over-the-air broadcast, terrestrial broadcast now. I know you can do it for $3 billion because at Clemson football games, the tailgate parties all feature mobile satellite dishes, which retail <laughs> sell for $350. You put those in 10 million households <laughs> just to get the free broadcast signals down, and that's just $3 billion plus or minus. So anyway, you could actually clear up the entire band with, with a more ambitious uh, a program. So as we look forward, um, we know that the actual future is bright. We're making a lot of progress. This is India today. Cell phones are big everywhere. We know that. Um, this is my favorite application in the mobile space, today anyway. Uh, in uh, Singapore, Malaysia uh, area, uh, farmers take their phones out and they hold it in the field. And the phone records the noise and identifies the type of pest. And then it tells the farmer what pesticide is best to use. Tomorrow I'll have a different favorite app, but this is my favorite one today. Okay? This ecosystem is just going crazy through competition. And um, we, we don't need a federal land commission to have Central Park. We don't need a federal communications commission allocation to have unlicensed bands. Uh, we can do a lot of it through the market. And what we should avoid is tragedy of the anti-commons. In things like the light squared debacle, which come back and do another talk on that, but just fragmented property rights where very efficient new networks can't be built because the entrepreneurs can't deal, with, they can't basically make economic bargains with the parties that might be adversely affected and they can't share gains from trade.
So we want to avoid tragedy of the anti-commons. This is my favorite anti-commons graphic. Uh, too many cooks spoil the broth. Um, people of a certain age understand instantly. Those are the three stooges. And if you don't understand this, yes, I do have graduate students who were born in the 90s, and so they don't know who the three stooges are. But you know, this is why they have me as their professor, to explain important cultural, <laughs> cultural facts. But we've seen the future. It's Kosian, and it's a lot more. Uh, but we're still haunted by paradigms past. And when I say that, I think we can get the gist of it from Jeopardy, July 19, 2012, fairly current. Madman for 800, Alex. What was the answer? In the 80s, growing broadcast empires had help from the mad monk of deregulation, Mark Fowler of this commission. <laughs> wow. Now, they counted what is the FCC is the correct answer. But the broadcast empires didn't benefit <laughs> from the deregulation. They benefited. They benefited from the vast wasteland model where cable TV was suppressed to protect the vast broadcasting empires. Now, Jeopardy is a broadcast television show. I won't even note that. But we do get confused when we look at the paradigms and try to make choices. And I hope that people do look at the history and do look forward knowing all that we've learned. So that's it. That's the end of the rainbow. Thank you, Tom, for that wonderful uh, uh, presentation. We will take questions now. Please identify your, yourself uh, and ask your questions. Raise your hand and wait for the microphone. Got a question over there. Hi, my name is Mike Koop. I'm a consultant based in Chicago, so I appreciate the reference. Um, this may be too far afield, so feel free to say out of scope, but what are your thoughts on what the commission is currently doing with the decisions on uh, multi-channel video program distribution, MVPD, i.e. making cable guys, helping them get into the internet, um, having some of the internet over the top players uh, potentially look like cable companies. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of discussion going on there, and just curious if you have an opinion. Yeah, I, I won't comments on specifics, but at a general level, I mean, the FCC has not had a good track record on this. Uh, the commission um, had a whole strategy to try to change the set-top box to, quote-unquote, open up the set-top box so that instead of going to your cable operator and buying the set-top box or renting it, you would go to a retail outlet and from, from a third party. Now, They've had a lot of regulation on that. Uh, I'll send you a long law review piece I wrote on it about five years ago. It's just been a, by the FCC's own estimate, been a total failure. Um, and that third-party market never developed. Oh, yes, but it did develop. And it's developed through, of course, over-the-top programming. And it just came in in a very different way. The government is not good at coming up with the business models. And they're not even good at ambitiously regulating business models that others come up with. And the, the FCC really should be very careful when treading in this area. Uh, it does have 
a pro-competitive uh, opportunity in a lot of these things, just like they did with flexible use licenses, uh, and, they sh and they should uh, really focus on that. Uh, here I don't see exactly what, you know, what, what they're doing that's going to actually um, improve the situation. It certainly the market has developed without what the FCC's last plan was. Uh, the, the last plan was costly in terms of uh, the expense that actually uh, did get imputed to the market. Uh, it, it, it wasn't as bad as the 1962 Carter Mountain decision, but it, it did have some um, costly uh, regulatory imposition without any positive payoff that was visible to the Commission uh, or to the rest of us. So I would, I would, I would uh, say we need caution on that. And if you want to send me something and tell me more about it, I'd, I'd certainly read it. Next question. Uh, Richard Bennett, uh, American Enterprise Institute. So one of the issues with flexible use licenses is the boundary problem. So when you, when you have adjoining adjacent frequencies, how do you assess uh, who bears the responsibility for leakage across the spectrum barrier or the reception of potential leakage across the barrier, which is the issue in the light squared case, right? Because you had a high power application uh, terrestrial radio immediately adjacent to a low power uh, application GPS. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's exactly the question I was hoping somebody would ask. That's, that's a great question. Uh, so here, here's number one. You have a boundary problem, no matter who defines the property right, and whether or not it's the 1920s priority in use, the 1927 Radio Act public interest allocation, or some post, uh, you know, toaster model. Um, and what are the differences between the regulatory approaches? Uh, that's what you want to focus on in terms of the policy recommendation. When the government does it through a public interest, uh, does the definition of the boundary conditions, what one wireless user can, can do and where they have to stop to respect some other rights, when they do that, they generally are overly conservative in the extreme. And uh, endemically, there is underutilization of radio spectrum. And, um, and then when you get more activity, yes, there can be more conflicts. And what you want to have are rules in place where easy resolution rather than hard resolution is possible. And the flexible use licenses have been a wonderful example where you have fuzzy border conditions, but very good adjudication of the questions. You look at the cellular operators. They have adjacent spectrum, and, and literally thousands, there are over 50,000 mobile licenses in the United States that multiple carriers, you know, four nationwide carriers and then other regional carriers, utilize. And there's all kinds of adjacencies, and there's all kinds of spillover issues. What happens routinely is that the companies themselves have symmetric interests in straightening those things out, they rarely bring any of those disputes to the commission. Literally, the engineers for the companies work things out, uh, and, and, and sometimes uh, investments in better equipment are made, tr uh, base stations are moved, uh, certainly upgrades from 1G to 2G to 3G to 4G, next to 5G, uh, help on some of these things. Um, there are spectrum trades, secondary market activity, where you, you get on the same frequencies and have national coverage on the same frequencies. 
That helps on the border disputes. This is all market activity. Okay. Now, the, the classic example is, um, and, and, and it's, it's taken as a, uh, the example is taken perfectly wrongly, is a dispute in the, ninth, in the 2000s between Next, uh, uh, Nextel uh, and public safety. The FCC had originally carved up very tiny, fine, small, narrow channels in what's called the SMR band, specialized mobile radio, and in, in literally a six megahertz space had 250 different channels in there going to 250 different uh, agencies or owners. Well, Nextel came in, in in the 90s actually and bought up a lot of those licenses, all the ones they could privately buy, and made a big network out of it with, with about 15 million subscribers that in 2005 was sold to Sprint for, for $35 billion. Okay, they did something very valuable with that. They got a lot more activity, a lot more social productivity with that spectrum. But as soon as they did that, there's interference now. The FCC says, oh, this is a very terrible problem the market has given us. Yeah, the market made something valuable where there was nothing there before. So what happened was Nextel couldn't actually buy out police and fire. They couldn't buy out the public safety because they're not on the market. They're nonprofit organizations, government organizations. So they had to go to the government. What finally happens is there was a transaction made, suggested by Nextel. It was called the Nextel uh, plan. And, and, and Nextel put up money, $4.8 billion. The government assessed them. And then that paid for everybody to move and transition and just eliminate all these borders. Well, the market does that quite naturally. The government does it unnaturally. And it, and it turns out to be a real problem. That's why it's another reason you want to go to flexible use licenses and have as much of this activity delegated to the marketplace uh, where competitive forces make sure that people don't just stall and stammer and just hold up, hold up the regulators for year after year, that they actually get spectrum on both sides of the divide so it can be usefully, uh, gainfully employed, and then both sides profit from that, and they sometimes money changes hands, and they split the gains. So going to markets on the liberalization policy uh, that, that has been happening, and by the way, yeah, COSA's proof of concept has come, but many others who are on the cutting edge of this, including Evan Quirrell, uh, who's taught me a few things about spectrum policy over the decades, uh, are absolutely correct on how many of these institutions develop and efficiencies are discovered when you do download uh, the proper set of rights, use rights, property rights, if you will, to the marketplace, and you give incentives to the players outside the government to actually come up with gains from trade, profitable plans that are productive for society. By the way, just a little footnote. You notice how paralyzed regulators are by these disputes. They always, as a first, second, and third response, say to the parties, can't you just go to a room somewhere and hammer out a deal and come back to us and show us what you've done? We don't know who's going to interfere with whom. And all we can do is figure out who's yelling the loudest and who, who we should take seriously. That's all we can do. And the regulators are painfully aware of the problems they have in figuring this stuff out. That's, I think that that's driven a lot of, of people to listen to people like Ronald Coase and, and uh, Evan Quirrell and, um, and to liberalize spectrum policy to drive it out to competitive markets. And that's, that's been unmitigated success, in my opinion. One really quick question, then, it's 
1.30, and I, I promise to let folks leave. But one quick question. Hi, I'm Helen Allen, and thank you for coming today. I guess there's estimates on what the Spectrum sale auction will raise next year, anywhere from 10 to 80 billion, and I wondered what your estimate might be. And then my other quick question is, I'm surprised you haven't said this inefficient um, allocation is costing the consumer, because certainly our cell phone bills are going to be going up because of all this. <laughs> yes, uh, no, I mean, these are, these are real trillions in social welfare that uh, have been created by liberalization and are being squandered by the lack of further liberalization. You're absolutely correct. Um, in terms of my prediction for the, um, uh, the upcoming in, in the forward auction, uh, I absolutely agree. There'll be between 10 billion and 80 billion. <laughs> and on that, I note, think that's a very good estimate. Please join me in thanking Professor Hazlett.